Questions and Answers. Islam claims the Quran has been perfectly transmitted from heaven to Muhammad and is perfectly preserved from Muhammad to our present copy today. However, what evidence do Muslims have to support this claim? What do the earliest manuscripts of the Quran reveal? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zukran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. In today's broadcast, Pat and his guest, Dr. Jay Smith, will discuss archaeology and the Quran here in part two of a three-part interview. Uh-huh, that's great. So he said this right there on camera. Finally, Muhammad put his hand out and he says, I'm going to give you a blank sheet of paper. What are you going to write on this? Which Quran? Which writing? And he wouldn't answer. He wouldn't answer. He asked that three times in a period of 25 minutes. Finally, at the end of the 25 minutes, you could see that Yasser Qadi was frustrated. He asked him a third time, I'm going to put out my hand. What are you going to write on this? And he said, all of them are the word of God. All of them are the word of God. Ooh, doo, 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 doo. I just started laughing. What an admission. This man was still in a crisis of faith. He still had no answers. Basically, when he says, I give up, they all are the word of God. All 93,000 differences are the word of God. Basically, what he was saying is God cannot protect his word. God cannot preserve his own word. By the end of that, that was both put up on his site and was put up on Muhammad Hijab's site. It's still up on Yasser Qadi's site. You can still see it up there, but he's had to shut down all comments because he was getting thousands of comments from Muslims who were saying, because of you, Muslims are leaving Islam. Because of what you have said, you are going to be held responsible in the day of judgment. Before Allah, you are going to be held responsible for their blood. On Muhammad Hijab's site, it became so damaging that he took off the last 26 minutes. A week after it had been up, he had to excise. It's no longer there. That whole interview only goes up to one hour and 16 minutes. It should be an hour and 45 minutes. And he's taken off all comments. That's how damaging that interview was. And that was just on June the 8th. Well, you can imagine what we did. We've been all over putting up video after video. I've been up to sometimes 4 and 5 o'clock in the morning, just putting up video after video, trying to get one up every two days on just the Qira'at. And we haven't even got to the manuscripts yet. That's coming next. So we are destroying the Quran. And we're doing it using polemics. This is my doctoral, this is what my doctorate's in, is in polemics. Polemics is the opposite of apologetics. Apologetics defends, polemics goes on the offense. And you remember, as Vince Lombardi says, the best defense is a good offense. And I am on the offense. And we realize that to, in order to shut down Islam, you cannot really get, pay, get their attention. You will not get their attention just by preaching the God. Well, I'm not saying you won't. Some will. Very few Muslims will you get their attention just by preaching about Jesus Christ or the Bible. Because they believe Jesus is not God. And they believe very clearly that the Bible is not the word of God. That it's been corrupted. So you've got to somehow convince them that there's a problem first with their own God and their own book and their own math. And so what we have been saying is you've got to break down the walls that keep them from leaving questioning. That's what we're doing with polemics. Polemics confronts the book and the man, the book and the man, the book and the man, the book, the Quran, the man, Muhammad. That's what I've been doing for the last 40 years and especially for the last 25 years in London. And that's what we're training up people to do. And that's what our master's degree is going to be on. It's going to be the first master's degree on just that, how to defend the Bible and confront the Quran, how to defend Jesus and confront Muhammad, how to defend Yahweh and confront Allah. Yes, you know, and that's absolutely devastating because as we said, the perfection of the Quran is one of the key pillars of Islam. And boy, if you can take down that pillar by showing that we do not have a 
accurate preservation of the Quran. That's just absolutely devastating. It is devastating. And it's here's the great thing about it, Pat. It's visual. You don't even have to know Arabic to know what I'm talking about. When, they, when we put the timelines up, all we do is put, I've just been putting timelines and timelines showing you when the Gid'at were first created. There is not one Gid'at, there's not one of these Qurans that exists prior to 736. Wow. Muhammad died in 632. It takes him 100 years to write one of these first Qurans down that's different. And then from 736 up until 905, these Qurans continue to get written down. That's the problem right there. They're all written long after Muhammad, not even in the same century Muhammad lived in, which not only destroys the Quran as far as its authority and distances it from Muhammad, it also destroys Muhammad. Because if Muhammad did not receive a Quran, if he did not live in Mecca, if his name's not even found anywhere in any documentation until 691, if we have no idea of who he is or what he said, and all of that that we do talk about, what he said and what he did, was from two to three hundred years after the fact, we are killing, not only are we destroying Muhammad, we're destroying the Quran, we're throwing the book and the man in one fell swoop, and everything we're using is called historical criticism. The same criticisms that were created on the Bible. So that's why we're the best at it. That's why we understand it better than anybody else. We have done it. It's been created on the Bible, and the Bible has passed every one of those tests. Yeah, so, you know, the historical nature of Muhammad, the founder of Islam, is now in question. So Questioning Muhammad, we're questioning the Quran. And once you question those two, those are the two pillars mm-hmm. without which Islam cannot exist. It is dependent on one book and one man. The book is the Quran, and the man is Muhammad. And interestingly, so are we. We are dependent on two things, one book and one man. The book is the Bible, and the man is Jesus Christ. Therefore, we understand this better than anybody else. We are the best at it for confronting the Quran, because we know that in every one of these weaknesses that Islam has, we have a strength. So make sure that you shut down the Quran, but bring it back to the Bible. Make sure you shut down Muhammad, bring it back to Jesus Christ. Make sure you shut down Allah and bring it back to Yahweh. We do both apologetics and polemics simultaneously because we're so much alike. We start with the same paradigm. So if there isn't a mention of him, then was he really a historical figure in, you know, do you believe he really was? He really existed? No, no. I do not believe there was a Muhammad. I think they had to create Muhammad. They had to create. There there may have been many Muhammads, but not the Muhammad of faith. He's not the Muhammad of Islam. There are many people called Muhammad. It was a popular name. There may even there even right, may be a man who considered himself to be a prophet who called him Muhammad, but he did not live in Mecca. He did not receive a Quran. He did not start a religion called Islam, and he certainly didn't live out live in the even this in Arabia. He lived much much further north, probably up in Petra. Yeah. So the question is then. Who started, who is the founder of Islam? It looks like the founder of Islam is a man named Abdul Malik, who is the caliph from 685 to 705. He is the caliph of the Marwanid Caliphate from the Umayyad Caliphate, uh, who is the first one to introduce the coins. And that's why you need to look at the coins. The coins all, you can follow the whole trajectory from 622, 630 to 640, up until 661, when Mu'awiyah comes to power, and then move right up in where Abdul Malik who's living in Damascus. Here's another question. Why is he living way up in Damascus? Why isn't he living in Mecca if he is an Islamic caliph? He's living way up in Damascus, and he's praying, and his sanctuary is in Petra. He is a Nabataean, so he comes from the Nabataean kingdom. And he is the one that is an Arabist. He believes that he is in the Abrahamic tradition. He, he would call himself an Ishmaelite. He would call himself a Hagarin from the line of Hagar, from the line of Ishmael. 
dull, they go back to Abraham. And that's why he would see himself as a cousin to the Jews and Christians. But here's the problem. The Jews and Christians have a prophetic line. He doesn't. The Jews and Christians also have a scripture. He doesn't. And now he controls all the land. In 685, he controls all the land from Afghanistan all the way over to Spain. From Spain to Afghanistan is under his control. He is by far the major superpower next to the Byzantine. And the Byzantines are Christian. So his biggest threat are the Byzantines. He's already eradicated and destroyed the Sassanians, the Persians. So what does he do? He needs a man. He needs a book that can compete with the Byzantine Christianity. So what do you do? Well, that's why you build the Dome of the Rock. And look at the Dome of the Rock. That's the kingpin. You need to look at the Dome of the Rock. Pat, if I had about an hour, I'd explain this all to you. There's an enormous amount of stuff here that you'd have to listen to in order to understand where we're all going with this. But just to say, in order to compete against Byzantine Christianity, you've got to have an identity, an Arab identity, an Arab identity based on your prophet with your revelation. That's why once you name him and you put him on the Dome of the Rock, you put him on on your coins, and you put him on the Caliphal Protocols. Those are the official documents by the Caliph. Those were all introduced in 691. Once you do that, then you've got to suddenly, you've got to create a book for him because every prophet must have a book. That's why look at the Quran. It's borrowed left right, left, and center. But they borrowed the wrong material. They didn't borrow from the Bible. They borrowed all these apocryphal accounts. They borrowed all these Christian sectarian writings. That's why they, all the prophetic stories just make no sense. They're unbelievable. They're, fact, they're fantastic in nature. And they're completely contradictory to what we see in the Bible. But they're the same characters. They're the same names. They just don't have the same stories. And take a look at Jesus in the Bible. He spends all his time as a baby, speaking from the cradle, making birds out of clay, blowing on them, flying them up in the air, teaching his mother how to eat fruit from a tree as a baby, talking about that he's going to live, blessed be he, he talks from the cradle, he's going to, blessed be he, the day he was born, the day he dies, and then he, the day he rises again, refers to his death and resurrection yet to come. But then in chapter 4, verse 157, he never dies. He lets someone else die in his place. So you can see there's so many contradictions in the Bible, but then that's what happened when you borrow right, left, and center. You borrow, and you borrow the wrong material. But that would take hours for me to get into all of that. That's an awful lot of material to hear just in five to ten minutes. Yes, and so some people hearing this for the first time are absolutely shocked, and they're saying, Jay, are you saying the Battle of Bader, the Battle of Uhud, the capture of Mecca, all of this is, is fiction? It's, it's made up? Absolutely fictitious because there is no, we can't find any reference to anybody called Abu Bakr or Umar or Uthman or Ali. The four first caliphs, we don't have any reference for. There's no coins with their names on it. Yet there are coins being coined by the caliphs at that time, but their names aren't there. And all the coins that are from six, remember, the Abu Bakr comes to power in 632, according to the tradition that are written in the 9th and 10th century. There in 632, who is the caliph? He is not Abu Bakr, and he is a Christian. He has, he's holding a cross, and he has a cross on his crown. All of the earliest Arab leaders, when you become a leader, the first thing you do is you mint coins, because that's how you introduce yourself. They didn't have radio. They didn't have television. They didn't have newspapers. They had coins. And you put your name on it, you put your date on it, and you say who you are and what religion you belong to. And all of the earliest coins up until 661, so that's 30 years after Muhammad supposedly died, when Mu'awiyah comes to power, and he is the first real identifiable caliph, because he is the beginning of the Umayyad caliphate. He should be a Muslim, right? Yet he's holding a cross. Mm. And then on the backside of the coin, there is a 
fire altar, a Zoroastrian fire altar. There's nothing Islamic about his coins. For 20 years, all of his coins, there's nothing about Muhammad, there's nothing about the Quran, there's no Shahada, there is no reference to Mecca, or there's no reference to Islam, or there's no reference to him being a Muslim. None of these are on the coins. He's either a Zoroastrian in the eastern part, or he's a Christian in the western part of his empire. It is only when Abdul Malik comes to power that you then finally get the Shahada is introduced in one fell swoop overnight in 691, which causes a war between him and Justinian II, because Justinian II realizes that this is a declaration of war against the Byzantine Empire. And that's where the coins then start to show the Shahada, then you see the Bismillah, and then you start to see all this Islamic paraphernalia start to start to show on the coins. That's why the coins are brilliant, because the coins are not an argument from silence. And yet no one's bothered to interpret those coins before. We started doing that in January, and now there's a whole team of us who are looking at the coins and saying, folks, we've got a whole different history. And the history that we're talking about fits exactly with all the work that Dan Gibson is doing, with all the work that Dr. Dan Brubaker is doing on the manuscripts, with all the work that Dr. Mark Dury is doing on the Arabic. It all fits to all of our material is fitting to because they're showing that they've got the wrong man at the wrong place doing the wrong thing at the wrong time. This whole thing with the Kira'at that's just exploded in the last six weeks, can you then understand why almost all of this happens in the 8th and 9th and 10th century, but why is it that all these Qurans start to proliferate in the 8th and 9th and 10th century after 736 and later? Why aren't these Qurans proliferating in the 7th century when Muhammad lived, when Uthman was writing the Quran? Can you now see why? Because you have to start with Abdul Malik. Everything begins with him. And you've got to go to the Dome of the Rock, that huge, beautiful building there, and take a look and look at the only part of the Dome of the Rock that's original. And those are the two inner ambulatories. Take a look at the inscriptions. They're all Arabic. And they are Quranic, but they're not the same as the Quran we have today. There are differences. But what, in the, what are they attacking? All of those inscriptions on the Dome of the Rock are attacking Jesus Christ. They're attacking his divinity, they're attacking the Trinity, they're attacking his sonship, they're attacking God the Father, they're attacking the four areas that Muslims are still attacking us today. Islam was created by Abdul Malik as an attack against Byzantine Christianity, and that's why they built the Dome of the Rock there in Jerusalem, sitting above, looking down onto the Church of the Sepulchre, because Jerusalem is nothing to Islam. There's no reason to have a, such a huge structure there. There's no reason to have such a beautiful building there. Unless, of course, you're putting your foot down and you're saying, we are now the new religion, and we are the ones that are now going to have our prophet with his book. Of course, the book didn't exist. That's why they had to create the book so quickly, and that's why you have so many different derivations. But it all starts in 691. Once you do that, you can then understand then why they had to then destroy all the other. And that's why it takes them another 100 to 200 years to get the history in there, to get the sayings in there, and then, of course, to get the biography. That's exactly what would happen when you are then subjugating, eradicating, and trying to create and put a place for this man and a history and his sayings. But it all fits. It all starts with Abdul Malik in 691. Yeah, and those inscriptions in the Dome of the Rock, you're talking about what's on there inside the dome, right? They're on the inner ambulatories, those two rounds, those two yeah. arcs that go in a, a circle, but they're an, eight, an eight-sided circle. Those are the ambulatories. That's the only original part of the building. It, the, that Dome of the Rock has been destroyed and rebuilt 11 times, but those are the two original parts, and that's where the inscriptions are. They're in Arabic, and they are all against Jesus Christ. Yes. Now, you know, when it comes to the Bible, my doctoral studies are in biblical archaeology. There are literally tens of thousands of archaeological discoveries that confirm the historical events, people and places of the Bible. Well, what about the Quran? I mean, you talked about that. Do we have archaeological evidences of Medina, the Battle of the Ditch and, and Mecca? What about in Mecca? Do we have 
uh, archaeological <laughs> structures there in, in Mecca for Mohammed. I love that. Let me answer that one. This is one of the best questions you could ask. As an archaeologist, you're going to love this. Mecca, according to Islam, is where Adam and Eve were thrown to. In chapter 7, verse 24 of the Quran, they're thrown out of the Garden of Eden, which is up in space. Their Garden of Eden in space, ours is on Earth. A completely different Garden of Eden. Because they eat of the fruit, they are then condemned, they are then forgiven, and then they're thrown down to Earth. Where are they thrown to? According to traditions, to Mecca, which means Mecca should be the oldest city in the history of mankind, correct? Right, correct. Because there's no one earlier. There's no yeah. one earlier than Adam and Eve. Mm-hmm. Secondly, in chapter 21 of the Quran, verse 51 to 71 of the Quran, it talks about Abraham being in. It doesn't say Mecca. It just says being in the city of the Prophet is what it calls. So there's no reference. There's only one reference to a city called Mecca in the entire Quran, and that's in chapter 48, verse 24. But here in chapter 51, he goes to the city of the Prophet, and he builds. He goes into the Kaaba the square building, and he destroys all the idols there. He comes out the next morning, they grab him, they throw him into a fiery pit, which God then rescues him out of the fiery pit, which is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Where in the world did all this come from? That comes from a Jewish apocryphal account called the Mishnah of Rabbah, written in the 2nd century AD. Nothing more than a... And and, and the Mishnah of Rabbah has nothing to do with Mecca. It has much to do with Abraham way up in the north. Nonetheless, they have taken that and put it into the Quran in chapter 21, which suggests, therefore, that Mecca should be existing in 1900 BC, because that's where Abraham was living. Am I correct? Right. Mm -hmm. So it should be one of the oldest cities in the history of mankind. We are then told that Muhammad lived there, was born there in 570, and that he moved from there in 622 to go up to Medina. So, therefore, there should be a reference to Mecca, certainly in the 6th century and also the 7th century, right? Because 570 and 630, he lived there to, to 622. It was the center of trade, according to all the traditions, north, south, east, and west. Everybody has believed that Mecca controlled all the commerce, and this is where the Kaaba was, and this is where the center of, of the history is. Dr. Patricia Krone, who is considered, was considered, she just died two years ago, but when she was living, one of the greatest historians of Islam that's ever existed, she reads and writes 15 languages. She got her doctorate at School of Orange and African Studies, was head of department at Oxford University in Islamic Studies, when she decided to do some study on this on Mecca. She said, well, listen, if Mecca is so great, there must be some reference to it. Now, she went back to all the trading documents in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th, up until the 7th century to look and see if she could find any reference to a city called Mecca. Couldn't find one reference at all. Wow. So then she went and looked at all the maps. Because all the maps are, you know, there's there's lots of maps from the 6th and the 7th century. Couldn't find any reference to Mecca. No, there's no reference to Mecca. There's a reference to Taif, just southeast of Mecca. There's reference to Yathrib, which is now Medina. There's reference to Tabuk and Khaybar and, and Nazaran. These are all famous places along the western plateau where the trade went. But there's no reference to Mecca at all in any on any of these maps until 900. That's the 10th century. 10th century. So the first place... She could find a reference to Mecca is the Apocalypse of Continuata Arabica, which is from 741 AD. Muhammad died in 632. That's over 100 years later that you find the first reference to Mecca. Now, okay, so let's just say they forgot to write it. Let's just say they forgot, anybody forgot to talk about it. She went to the trading documents of the of the Sassanian Empire, the, who lived in Stesiphon, which is today Baghdad, and they had they came down to Yathrib and they found silver mines there. That's just northeast of Mecca. And they write about these silver mines, and they talk about Yathrib, and they talk about going down to uh, Taif, just south of them. What about Mecca? Not one reference to Mecca in any of their writings. Yet it's the center of trade. Why didn't no one know about this place? So then 
Patricia Corona asked the question, why is it if there's no Mecca, then you cannot have Qibla? Because all the mosques were facing Mecca from 624 on, because that was the canonization of the Qibla. And that's in the Quran as well. Chapter 2, verse 147, it says that they must change their Qibla from Jerusalem down to the Masjid al-Haram. That means the, the forbidden mosque. Of course, Muslims assume that's in Mecca. That's the name of the mosque there in Mecca today. So everybody assumes that's Mecca, though it's not written in the Quran that way. It just says Masjid al-Haram. So she said, well, let's take a look. And so she went and started looking and finding and asking, well, let's see where the mosques are all facing. And everybody knows that none of the mosques are facing Mecca. Not one. Dan Gibson spent from 1979 to 2004, 25 years, going to 100 mosques, physically going to all the mosques. And he took coordinates. He used Jasper uh, satellites to take coordinates of all the Qiblas and found that none of the Qiblas are facing Mecca. All the Qiblas are facing Petra in Jordan, 600 miles further north, up until 706. That's the 8th century. Muhammad died in 632. The Qibla was canonized in 624. All the mosques are facing 706. So when is the first mosque that he could find that's facing Mecca? 727. That's over 100 years. That's over 100 years after the Qibla was canonized. Well, why are they all facing Petra? Take a look at Petra. Look and see where Petra is. What is it? It's the seat of the Nabataean kingdom. It is where all the Nabataeans go to for their temples and to die. It's a city of tombs and temples carved out of sheer rock. It's one of the great wonders of the world today. So here she goes, and she looks, and she realizes, and here Dan Gibson comes in. He spent his whole career doing this. He's still looking. He's now found many more mosques. He's found mosques as far away as China, in Canton, that are facing Petra, as far away as India, in Kerala, Cherman, facing Petra, in mm. Turkey, in Jordan, in Syria, all the mosques, they're facing Petra, and they're within two degrees off from thousands of miles away. That's how accurate they were. And when the mosques start to face Mecca in 727, when he looked at all the Qiblas there, they're off on an average of 4.78 degrees off, twice as in error as the Petran mosques, which are much, much earlier. Now, why haven't the Muslims done this work themselves? No Muslims had dared to do this kind of work. It's all being done by Western archaeologists and Western scholars like Dr. Patricia Corona, uh, Dr. Robert Hoyland, who reads and writes 18 languages, these people are linguists. They're looking at the earliest documents. Dr. Robert Hoyland was head of department at Oxford University. When Patricia Corona wrote her book on this, Mecca and Train the Rise of Islam, in 1987, she got death threats from Muslims and had to leave Oxford and go to Cambridge, where she was head of department. That's where I got to know her. And she helped me put together a debate in 1995. Look at the date, 1995. That was 25 years ago when I debated Dr. Jamal Badawi at Cambridge University on 10 historical problems with the Quran. That was 25 years ago. Dr. Jamal Badawi, at that time, the leading authority in the English-speaking world on the Quran and on the history of the Quran, could not answer one of those questions. Not one. And 25 years later, they still don't have an answer. Can you then understand why Islam is starting to crumble and why we are confronting? And this is why I've spent 25 years on this material. I will continue to the day I die. This is why I got my doctorate, so that I can continue to his, hit Islam historically for a number of reasons, Pat. Because every one of these kind of questions... This is called historical. This is called literary criticism. This is called redacted source. These are all questions we invented. We created these criticisms on the Bible. They were all created on the Bible. And the Bible has answered every one of these criticisms. 
and they are the most neutral of all criticisms. Anybody can use it. This is nothing politically. There's no political. This is as politically correct as you can get, because I'm not attacking them using Christian theology. I'm not sitting there and braiding them over the head because I disagree with their, who their God is. I'm asking them simple, much more simple question. Is it true? That's all I'm asking. Is it true? When you claim that the Quran has never been changed, is that true? Can you prove it? And let me show you where you are wrong. When you say Muhammad lived in Mecca, did was there even a Mecca at the time of Muhammad? Did he ever live there? Did anybody live there? And when the, uh, Dan Gibson went to these archaeologists who had been... Remember, Pat, you know this better than anybody else because you're an archaeologist. Whenever there is a large building being built in large in, in major cities, old cities, skyscrapers, for instance, you have to dig deep into the ground to pick, put foundations in there, don't you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So whenever you go to London, whenever they put a large building up, they have to get permission to dig into the ground. And whenever they do, the archaeologists show up. Why? Because they're doing the job for the archaeologists because they can dig much deeper with much bigger machines and they can go much further and they can get more history. And whatever they dig up, they give to the archaeologists first. And the archaeologists look for pottery. They look for shards. They look for all kinds of jewelry. They look for anything with inscriptions on it so that they can recreate the history of the city. And this happens in Athens. This happens in Rome. This happens in London. And it especially should happen in Mecca. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers Radio Broadcast. We hope you enjoyed Pat's show today. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or perhaps hold a conference, give him a call locally in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. To keep broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online on the homepage. You'll also find that we have a wide variety of resources available to you. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucran. Hey, 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 hey.